0: The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and losses may be made. With me today is Philip Saunders, co-head of Multi-Asset Growth, and he discusses the dramatic policy shift towards defence and energy spending in Europe and explains why the conflict may mark a turning point in the world's reliance on the US currency. That's in a piece that he kindly sent me earlier today. Philip, it's not our job to talk about the ongoing war or invasion of Ukraine by Russia, but it is our job to talk about what I've said in your introduction to your piece. And before you comment, I want to just read the first sentence of the next paragraph of the piece, which says the following. While the full impact of the Ukraine crisis on the global economy and markets is unknown, much like the COVID crisis, several major medium and longer term themes are now readily discernible. What are they?
1: Yeah, well, Lindsay, the first is obviously this realization that depending heavily on russia as the primary gas and oil supplier you know which suited particularly german industry extremely well and indeed the broader german population and obviously other countries in the eu are in a sort of similar position you know in, in some cases with you know even larger reliance you know the problem is that if you rely on that you are effectively putting yourself at the mercy of, you know, a potential aggressor. And in a way, you know, German policy is understandable to try and actually sort of bring Russia in from the cold after the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union. But I think that they went too far and they realize they've been too far in, you know, the awful circumstances that have been unfolding, you know, since the um, end of February. So significant change now has to happen in terms of European energy supplies. And that has a number of knock-on effects. It means that you know, fossil fuel prices have gone crazy. And that's drawn people's attention to the fact that uh, you know, we're still you know, 80% plus dependent on fossil fuels at an international level for energy needs. Um, and you, you can't just sort of transition immediately. To uh, alternative energy. It's a sort of, you know, it's a process that clearly takes time. And now, basically, obviously, the pace is being pushed up. So Europe is actually going to go harder at the energy transition, but it's going to take time. And in the meantime, capital has to get to fossil fuel productions, alternative uh, sources of fossil fuels, in order to prevent prices becoming uh, a significant problem during this period of transition. So significant changes on that front. How is it going to be financed? Well, it looks as if it's going to be financed on a pan-EU basis, rather like the post-COVID fiscal boosts. And that's deeply significant because it suggests that uh, Europe is once more being pushed along a path of monetary union by the kind of pressures it's having to confront.
0: What does it mean for capital raising? You're talking about a huge transition and the transition will be costly. What does that mean for bond markets? What does that mean for capital markets? And as head of, co-head rather, of multi-asset growth at 91, that must be something that is in the back of your mind. Well, absolutely.
1: It means that governments are going to have to borrow more money. And it's not just for the energy transition, speeding that process up. It's also because defence spending has had to go up. Or is having to go up dramatically so people talked about the uh, peace dividend well the peace dividend has just gone out of the window so it meant that countries like uh, relatively demilitarized countries like Germany have saved billions from not having to uh, spend you know 2% plus of their GDP on defense now they're gonna have to spend uh, spend that again so you've got these two additional pressures on government finances that uh, are already relatively stretched, particularly in southern Europe.
0: You mentioned former President Donald Trump in your piece as well. And in a rare moment of clarity, in my opinion, he was almost prophetic in his announcement. What did he say, which is in your piece, by the way?
1: Sure. So, effectively, there was a NATO conference that he attended and uh, he came to Europe and he was trying to get uh, the Europeans to bear more of the defense burden because he felt that uh, you know probably rightly so that America was picking up an excessive part of the tab for the defense of Europe and he pointed out that the degree of energy dependence uh, on the part of Germany and other European states on Russia was you know potentially excessive uh, and you know he you know he was laughed at at the time but in reality, he was absolutely right in the sense that a geostrategic choice had been made by a number of countries, and of course this was going to increase because Nord Stream 2, the very controversial, you know, additional pipeline from Russia to Germany avoiding Ukraine, you know, that was being built at the time, you know, funded presumably by you know German money. So yes, I and mean, we criticise him in all sorts of ways, but he, a, he was correct to say that uh, America was shouldering an excessive defence burden, burden, and he also was pointing out the fact that uh, Russia was a potential aggressor. And one had to at least sort of factor that into the decision in a way that Germany, for one, uh, hadn't.
0: Let's move on to China now. You say China is in an uncomfortable position, given Xi's announcements of the country's no limits in inverted commas, partnership with Russia on the 4th of February. They're cosied up, I think it was at the Winter Olympics, but anyway, and that was just 20 days before the Russian invasion of Ukraine on February the 24th. The full consequences, you go on to say, for China of its close association with Russia are yet to be determined, but those of America's willingness to weaponize its currency via the blocking or confiscation of reserves and exclusion from SWIFT, the dollar payment system, are Clear now, this brings us on to the fact of the dollar. The dollar is very strong, I think. As we pre record this podcast, it's at a multi year high against the, the European currency. What are the implications of the China association with Russia?
1: Well, I think that you know, again, I, I think that obviously the relationship between China and Russia is you know, has evolved in an interesting way over the years, because previously China was very dependent on Russia. Russia was the senior partner, if you like, under the sort of communist system. But China now has eclipsed Russia massively from an economic perspective. And now actually Russia is the supplicant, if you like. Uh, They're both united by their dislike of uh, their fear of Western liberalism, and if you like democratic systems compared to their own autocratic approach to politics and society. So China, uh, you know, the relationship is somewhat symbiotic because of that, but also because uh, Russia has a lot of the raw materials and energy and so forth that uh, China needs to continue its uh, growth and to be less vulnerable to having uh, supplies of, you know, China imports 70 percent plus of its oil, um, and so, therefore, you know technically the American Navy can sort of switch off that supply, uh, pretty a significant part of that supply from the Middle East. So they have common geostrategic uh, and geopolitical uh, interests, uh, and so therefore that has sort of resulted in the collaboration. Was China aware of what Putin was likely to do in uh, in Ukraine? I think generally, probably not. Certainly not. You know the degree of the conflict that's happened, and the viciousness of it. Um, because China being China wants to be a global player. Russia is under Putin is prepared to be isolated. China doesn't want to be isolated, but if it seems to be too close to Russia, uh, then it risks uh, you know further polarisation of international relationships, which. Uh, you know, could be really damaging to, uh, you know, particularly Chinese exports, for example, and flows of flows of capital. But looking at it from the American dimension, America basically has sort of weaponized its currency. It's using its power to have an impact on, you know, how China behaves in all of this, um, you know, with sanctions and so forth. But you can only really do that once, you know, because other states, you know, they don't want to help be held to ransom by one global power. And so the Chinese don't want to up the pace, particularly of renminbi internationalization. But they're going to be forced to do that at any rate, uh, because it means they have to sort of they have to loosen up their capital account. It means they have less control over their domestic uh, over domestic capital flows. But they're going to have to do that if they want to actually achieve greater independence from the US, you know, in times of stress.
0: You say that this probably marks the peak of the dollar era. But on the other hand, if you go to a village in Somalia and give someone a dollar, uh, you'll be welcomed with open arms. If you go to a vodka bar in Moscow and give them a few dollars, the same thing will happen at, at the moment. So it's going to take a lot of unravelling for the dollar to lose its status, I would have thought.
1: Yes, I mean, I think that these things sort of you know happen slowly at first and then and then tend to sort of pick up speed. I'm not saying that this is going to happen tomorrow, but, you know, a lot of countries are going to be looking at their reserves, you know, much of which is held in dollar um, you know, in the form of U.S. T-bills and uh, treasury bonds. And this is great from a U.S. perspective because it means that the, the U.S. could benefit from tapping the world savings um, and enjoying basically a sort of standard of living and so forth that's not justified by the sort of level of savings in the U.S. at the moment, Yes. So I think that you know many countries are going to be looking to you know build up assets in other currencies, and I cited the example of the negotiations between Saudi Arabia at the moment and China. Yes. Obviously, Saudi Arabia being a major supplier of oil to China, used to be a major supplier of oil to the United States during the petrodollar period. Now, it basically is uh, the U.S. is largely self-sufficient in terms of oil. But now China is uh, Saudi's largest um, individual customer. And I suspect that, you know, the bulk of those purchases are going to be transacted in renminbi, um, you know, in the not too distant future. You remember that the dollar's preeminence, you know, really received this phenomenal boost back in the 1970s during the oil crisis and so forth you know, because oil was priced in dollars, you know, it was that sort of bargain between Saudi, the Saudis and uh, uh, the Americans, their principal customer at the time, that, you know, really sort of, you know, strengthened the dollar's dominance uh, and made it so ubiquitous as a global currency.
0: Okay, the key question now is, as co-head of multi-asset growth, what does this mean for your strategy in the Short and medium term, long term, far too long term, but short and medium. What does it mean to you? Because you've obviously made some very um, startling predictions here.
1: Yes, so, so I think that as far as I mean, we are long dollars, and we have been long dollars because you know we 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 felt that so the conditions were there for a continuing dollar bull market. Uh, we obviously didn't predict that the uh, the actual invasion of Ukraine by the Russians, but the dollar has this sort of safe haven sort of benefit. And also the Fed, having made a massive policy error by not uh, ending QE earlier and normalizing interest rates, is now rushing to uh, sort of catch up um, and, you know, basically catch up with, uh, get, get ahead of the curve rather than behind the curve. And at a time when other countries are easing, so the Chinese are easing. European recession is, you know, a growing probability at the moment. So there's a limit to the extent to which uh, the ECB can normalise policy. So you know interest rate divergence is sort of, you know, is favouring the dollar as well. So the safe haven effect, uh, you know, growing interest rate differentials, you know, this this is you know this is going to propel an already overvalued dollar to potentially higher levels over the medium term. So the comment really relates to you know a longer term perspective, and it might well mean that the next cyclical bear market in the dollar will start to have some structural characteristics as well as far as other positions you know i think we're in a difficult environment so we're cautiously positioned at the moment in terms of risk levels in our portfolios um, and intend to remain that way although we've got to accept that you know the treasury market has sold off a long way now, and we're now discounting a much more realistic path of interest interest rates, and you know maybe an excessive interest rate path, and so therefore, you know it may well be that uh, it's time to be you know potentially reconsidering the, the treasury market. But for equities, I think we're in for an uncertain time, and uh, we need to have a bit more clarity about you know how things are going to unfold and the economic sort of blowback effects from how the uh, ukraine crisis works
0: its way out philip thank you very much for your insight that's philip saunders co-head of multi-asset growth at 91 in london this podcast is a marketing communication and is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets it is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice the views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of 91. In South Africa, 91 is an authorised financial services provider.